describe what that what the drum what is the power of the drum what from your perspective what does that do well there when everybody gets into this one pulse um it creates a sense of connection so people you know can really feel as though they're part of this force and there's communication i mean it's a way of speaking you know through your drum in fact you know in working with um people out at the nursing home um the condition of aphasia, which is uh, difficulty in finding words and speaking, can often be um, dealt with through drumming, through communicating back and forth with a rhythm instrument. And um, there's actually there's a principle in physics called rhythmic entrainment. And basically what it says is that everything... All, all rhythm gravitates to the predominant pulse in the immediate environment. It was discovered in the mid-1600s by a clockmaker in Europe. Um, he, he made and repaired pendulum clocks, and he would hang them on the wall, and you know each one would go up at a different time, but eventually they were all in sync with one another. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. So you learned through your journey what a lot of indigenous cultures have known for a long, long time. Yeah. Oh, and you know, and the the power of rhythm, you know, was used in in uh, on the battlefields, you know, to motivate, um, yeah, motivate the warriors. And and I've studied with um, with neurologists and, and people who are in the the medical field. Um, I've studied with them on the the power of of drumming, so it it, it creates a sense of connectedness. Also, um, when you play at something that's like a, a normal resting heartbeat, um, it can synchronize the hemispheres of the brain, and it, and it can produce a sense of well being and comfort. And there are certain rhythms, you know, like in, in the nursing home when if people were really agitated, um, there were certain uh, rhythmic meters that I used to calm them down. And, and you, can, you can actually energize or relax a person through, through rhythm and tempo. You know, if a person is feeling very lethargic or depressed, um, you can have them meet their heartbeat their you know their their current heartbeat which would be very slow if they're in that state and if they drum and gradually increase the tempo it will energize them and likewise if they're very agitated or angry you meet the heartbeat at that fast pace and then you very gradually slow it down and it calms the person down so tell me what it was like. I was watching you. I was watching you in in that drum circle, sort of bringing one side up and conducting basically this amazing pulse. What does that do for you? I mean, you. Well, I go. I go into another 
another plane of existence uh, yeah, when I'm imagine. out there. And, uh, it, you know, it's like being in the ocean, you know, being in the center of the circle and you know you have to you have to work in the round. I'm constantly turning around. I have to have what uh, my mentor calls th- uh, three point radar. You've got to be you got to know what's going on in all areas at the same time, and you have to be ready to um, to rescue a sinking ship. You when when you get when you get the the group in a groove, you want to get out of the way. And let it do its own thing. But you have to be ready to jump in at any minute if if it gets wobbly, you know, if like the, the spokes or the wheel are bent um, and if things get off kilter or if you've got a disruptive person. Um, so you got you, you got to go in with a full bag of tricks. You can't have a plan. Because, and that's what the beauty of this whole thing is that it's all spontaneous. You, 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 you never know what you're going to have to work with. You have to go in without a plan. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> but you got to have a full bag of tricks. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because you've got to be able to jump in and use them to rescue the circle if it starts getting in trouble. Does it require? Does it take energy from? I mean, it gives you energy, but it oh, must... it, oh, it's it, yes, it takes a lot of energy because I'm, you know, I have to be constantly alert, and I'm jumping around, you know, and I'm, you know, I've been wondering for a few years how long I'm going to be able to be jumping around like that and crouching down and, you know, hauling all those drums. But you know, a couple of years ago. Um, I had uh, some severe back injuries, and I wa- and I wasn't able to do it. And uh, my friends orchestrated, at my request, a big sale of my equipment after the drum circle. It was a frenzy. It was, you know, a pick what you want, pay what you want, and so. But people had to promise they'd bring the, the equipment back the next year for the drum circle. And by golly, two years ago they did. And this past summer was even more amazing. People brought huge numbers of drums and whole sets, and they would bring extras for other people. And it it was it was magical. It was it was incredible. Yeah. How many people do you think? How many drums were there? Do you do you think? I would say, well, it's not only drums. You know, there's shakers and bells and wood blocks and gallon jugs and all kinds of <laughs> pots and pans um there were probably about 400 people it's been as big as about 500 hmm. i think it was probably around 400 last summer it, it is an amazing event one of the one of the biggest events the drum circle kicks off one of the biggest events in on the western slope uh, you, oh yeah you, there there are some 20,000 people who come through that weekend you characterized the in an interview with with Luke Nessler that uh, the fair is an honoring of what we're all here for. Yeah, it's it's a celebration of of life, and I think you know everybody who who lives around here acknowledges what a wonderful place we live in, what a, and what a strong community it is, and um, you know our appreciation and reverence for the natural environment and uh, a peaceful existence. And, yeah, the mountain fair is a coming together to celebrate these blessings that we have. 
And I always see people that I haven't seen for a whole year. And it's a, it's a place where people come to, to get in touch after the winter and uh, the seasons yeah. have changed. It's a big reunion for kids who've grown up here, you know, and they've all gone off to college and they come back for the fair and get to see all their buddies. Did you? Did and you, and it's, another thing that it celebrates is the creativity that exists here. I mean, we've got a lot of artists in this town, but but there are people who are creative in other ways as well. And and there's that that energy, and and the spirit of volunteerism, uh, you know. And and it's a celebration of that too. And it, you you did tap into what was already here through your wisdom and and including people who are already here and because potato days was that you know that that honoring of the the harvest festival and people yeah. coming together yeah. you know when i when i first moved here there really there wasn't there wasn't anything going on for young people and uh <laughs> um there was a 10 o'clock curfew for people under 18 and in fact, there, the fire department didn't have pagers or anything at the time. The way they called the volunteers was a siren um, across the street in the alley between Maine and, and Garfield. And it blew at 10 o'clock at night. And it, it had caused, you know, babies to cry and old people to wake up and dogs to howl. And I went, I went to the town and said, you know, this can't, can't we... Uh, do something about this, and you know, I didn't. I wasn't very well received. So, <laughs> so I circulated a petition. This was my early activism in Carbondale. This is like 1971. I circulated a petition that that said that uh, you know that asked to. They said that they needed to blow the siren every day to know that it worked. So I said, well, how about noon or five o'clock? And um, the police chief at the time, uh, he was the marshal, uh, said, oh, no, no, no. Um, you know, it has to be blown at 10 to signal curfew. And I said, well, look, if you want to cultivate responsible young people, you know, leave it up to them to know what time it is. And uh, and he said, well, all hell will break loose, you know, at 10 o'clock. I said, well, let me ride with you, you know, at 10 o'clock and see what this is. We'll put it, you know, we're going to put, put it into a trial period here. And uh, the night I was supposed to ride with him, um, he called up and he said he had a flat tire. And I said, well, you know, eventually you got you to gotta patrol. So when you get your tire fixed, you pick me up. <laughs> then he called me up a couple hours later and he said, uh-uh, can't do it. Uh, liability. I said, I'll sign a waiver. Finally, he picked me up around 1 o'clock in the morning. And I think, you know, we, we answered one domestic violence call and we picked up uh, a couple of cans off of, the, off of Main Street. And that was it. So... Got that changed. And it was interesting when I was um, circulating the petition, people weren't used to that. One guy said, oh, well, I'd like to sign it, but the missus won't let me. And another one said, well, no, I better not do this now. But if you do it again, you come on back. 
But we did get it changed. So you and, you met a lot of people too, but oh yeah, yeah. But going and, door to door with I, a petition was was a new thing. Yeah, and I met a lot of people when I originally came here because um, people weren't into renovating old broken down places. They they were more inclined to just raise them and then stick a trailer on the lot. And so I had. Uh, I had old people from the neighborhood coming over just out of curiosity to see what I was doing. And and they coached me on so much. I mean, Marion Jacobs, who lived across the street, taught me how to garden. And she she taught me a lot of things. And she came over. I was tearing off the shingle roof. And she was still cooking and heating with, with wood. So she'd load up her wheelbarrow every day with my old shingles. And... I mean, I learned I learned a lot from the old people around here. So, what was it about about uh, percussion? You said you you started when you were just a kid. Yeah. Was there music in your house? We had a piano. I started out playing piano when I was probably four, and then I went to accordion. And then when I got into middle school, I wanted to play in the school band, but I didn't know a band instrument but because I knew the keyboard they put me on orchestra bells which is a part of the percussion section and then they got um, an arrangement of dragnet and there was nobody to go boom 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 (laughs) and that's when I started playing timpani and I was just totally enthralled right from the beginning and so my parents God bless them were very supportive of this uh, newfound passion of mine, um, even though at that time uh, girls did not play drums, um, they they got me lessons. My mom would take me down into New York. I, I studied at Juilliard with um, the one of the timpanists of the New York Philharmonic. So I got a wow. really good background. And... Um, and then I started playing in that repertory orchestra, which was the orchestra that all of the major symphonies in the country would go to to recruit new players. It was all the graduates of Juilliard, Manus School of Music, Manhattan, and all these different conservatories. So your parent, parents yeah. were all right with the timpani. You, did you have one in your house? No. no. I've, I have never owned timpani. <laughs> I currently, when I need to practice timpani parts, I practice them on my um, West African bass drums, the Dunun set. It's not quite like timpani, but um, timpani are not only large, uh, but they're also very expensive. I mean, a good a good set of, of four timps um, runs... From about twenty eight thousand up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's. Yeah. So not I have a snare never. Drum. I have never known, <laughs> owned my own timpani. So what did your parents do? What was? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up about twenty miles outside of New York City, northeast towards Connecticut. And uh, my mom was a housewife. She had been a milliner, a hat maker before she married, but my father didn't want her to work. And uh, my father was, uh, he had a, a degree in accounting, um, but he uh, was part owner of a company 
that made um, cardboard window displays and packaging and boxes. And then he bought into another company that, um, that made uh, games like shoots and ladders and board games. And uh, then, I don't know, when he was about 50-something, um, he had a heart angina condition and uh, decided to get out of those that field. Um, he, he was a self-taught horticulturist and actually became world-renowned in the field. And so when he uh, retired from the display advertising field, he bought part of a travel agency and arranged and booked and accompanied horticultural and cultural tours. And my parents, I mean, from the late 40s on, were very ardent travelers. And that bug, you know... So you got to go places. Too. Yeah. What kind yeah. of trips would you go on? Well, mostly, um, I mean, I, when I was really young, uh, I remember we went to a, a farm up in uh, upstate New York when I was about six. And a little bit later, we went down to Florida once. But when I was 12, the family, my sister and my parents and I all went to Europe for the summer. And that was when I fell in love with the Italian Alps. And so I got, you know, some exposure there. And and my parents would take me into New York City and we'd go to, you know, concerts and theater and um, museums. And so I had, you know, I had a, a, a pretty privileged upbringing and a lot of cultural exposure. Did you have brothers and sisters? Just one sister, five years older. Was there a large a large family, an extended family around? I mean, you were... Uh, my, my mother was one of three girls and uh my father had one brother we we were we were somewhat close with um you know my aunts and uncles but it wasn't a huge family but uh, we're a family of females my as i say my mother was one of three women and uh i'm one of two my sister has five daughters, and amongst them, they have seven daughters. But we don't make boys in our family. We only let them in to make more girls. <laughs> where, did you, where did you get that, that uh, sense of yourself? I mean, to come out to Colorado and come to a small western town and not be intimidated by the culture here and you know, your story of going door to door. I mean, that's... that's uh, that's brave and courageous in a way, I think. I don't know that I would have done something like that, having <laughs> known the I culture. I used to go door to door in my neighborhood selling the potholders that I wove. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Um, you know, it's funny. I, a few, a number of years ago, I went to a performance uh, in Basalt at the one of the schools there. Um, Michael Mead, the tribalist, was in the valley uh, doing sessions throughout the valley uh, with middle, middle and high school students. And they were uh, writing poetry and prose. And, and at the end of their week, um, they gave this performance of the work that they had created. And a lot of it dwelled on just the agony of being at that age and being so tired of 
being told what to do and who and how to be. And I, and I said to the friend who I attended with, I said, you know, at that age, I, I didn't know myself that well. And if I had, I never would have been able to so eloquently express myself. And a month later, my old high school boyfriend sent me a copy of a letter that I had written him at graduation. And it could have been written by me the day I was reading it. The hand was the same, a, a little bit um, more controlled, or less less controlled, you know, currently than when I had written it in high school. But what I said and how I said it was, I could have written it then. And then another thing happened. Um, I was visiting a cousin out in California, and we were looking at old home movies. And there was a, a, a movie of her on her ninth birthday sitting with a circle of friends on the on the grass and in the middle of the circle was her 12 year old cousin me bopping around the way I do when I facilitate a drum circle and there I was I mean I was doing this rhythmic thing and I was pointing at people and it blew me away I had no recollection of that and I thought I really did know myself yeah, back did. then. I didn't realize it. And um, I just, I don't know, I just have some guidance along the way. But that sense of self, um, and that, and, and, and I think, it, at least from what I'm observing, is, it, is a, a trust in others, you know, that you trusted the, the goodwill of the folks here in this community and knew that you could work through whatever differences or difficulties there might be and that there was a place for I, everyone. I believe people are basically good. <laughs> I, I, I really do. Um, but, you but, know, like in South Pacific, you know, they say you have to, you have to be taught to, to hate and, and be prejudiced. And, and I think a lot of that is born out of ignorance and lack of exposure. And so, um, you know, I think that being open and honest and forthright is uh, a good path to having um, amiable relationships. Well, you know, the Mountain Fair happened right at the end of the Vietnam War, which was a polarizing time for our our country and and this valley. You know, it did pit people against one another, and the hippies and the you know the whole war. So it in that context you were uh, going door to door and um making goodwill yeah yeah and you know this in carbondale people have always managed to get along there's always been mutual respect and and constructive um discourse until the marketplace <laughs> And I think that the energy that was interjected from outside of the community is what created such an ugly battle there, uh, because that's not the way we used to do things here. Yeah. You know, if we have differences of opinions, we talk about them and try to work work things out. So, when you first envisioned Mountain Fair, did you have any idea that it was going to be 
<laughs> Are you kidding me? No, a lot of the things I do, I you know, I I I have no idea that they're going to turn out the way they do. That's why I say there there must be some uh, divine guidance or something. I don't know. I just because I mean I think things through, but um, I very often don't realize what the ramifications are going to be. Well, my father used to say. Uh, his philosophy was trust the universe. I mean, the guy took on things that he, and you've just described some of those things where you didn't know how to take up to remodel a house and do a roof <laughs> or a garden or, but somehow you just knew that that was going to be something you could learn along the way. Yeah. I've, I've always been an experiential learner. And then I'll get so interested in, you know, in what it is that I want to learn about after I learn by doing, that then I'll go out and get some uh, didactic or academic training in it so that I can have the terminology to use in conveying the ideas. You've been yeah. threatening to uh, step down as the, the conductor of the drum circle. <laughs> You know, and everybody says, who are you trying to kid? And <laughs> well, you know, I realized that after this past summer. You know, I'm trying, I mean, I am getting older, and I'm having, you know, some health issues and stuff um, over the past couple of years. And uh, I thought, you know, I really have to pull back. Um, well, you know, for six years I was teaching um, a senior fitness class three three mornings a week until a couple of years ago, till my body imploded. And what I realized after, you know, so I, I, I said, you know, I need to pull back so that I can continue to do the things I love to do. Well, at the end of this past year's drum circle, I thought, this is what I love to do. And it's only once a year. So it doesn't make sense to step down from this um, until I really have to. Uh, what I need to, to pull back from are the things that I'm doing too much of and too often and too hard. Ah, oh, wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I mean, I really would like to get somebody else on board um, and trained so that someday when I really cannot do it anymore somebody will be able to step in and do it. And and it should be somebody from within the community. I mean, I do know wonderful drum circle facilitators, and it takes a lot of specialized training. Um, I do know people who do it, but they're not members of this community, and, and I, I don't want to see somebody just breeze in. I think it, it needs to be somebody who's really committed to this community and a part of this community. That's where a lot of the energy comes from. So did you know when you moved to Carbondale that you were you were committing yourself? It seemed like you got right to it. Was it, this is where I want to be from the get-go, or did that come over time? No. Um, that, that gradually grew. Uh, because there wasn't much going on here, um, I, I got together with the, the pastor the late, now late, pastor of the Methodist Church, and we um, decided to do a cultural exposure group for kids, for teens. And um, 
we brought in speakers from various walks of life. And then at one point, we, we were going to do some, there was some good community theater going on here. There was an opera company, a ballet company, a community theater, and two newspapers in Carbondale in, in the early 70s, early to mid-70s. And um, we decided that we would uh, do a little theatrical thing with the with the teens and they decided that they wanted to do a satire on their school and teachers and we got accused of being communists (laughs) (laughs) the methodist pastor and me (laughs) communists yeah communists yeah so you know there are again um Lack of exposure and just not really understanding what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's not a label we throw around too much anymore, but there are others. Yeah. <laughs> so what's still left to do? What's on your bucket list? Well, I want to, you know, I want to keep traveling. I'm not traveling the way I used to travel. I was a very intrepid traveler. Um, I would travel solo um, to the most remote and undeveloped places I could find, exotic places. And it was a real challenge. It was tough. And I don't, I'm not as, as fearless anymore. And I'm, I don't have quite that sense of adventure. Plus, you know, with telecommunications now, um, there aren't very, there aren't many of those places left. I mean, you get out in the boonies, everybody's got a cell phone, you know, and so now I'm, um, and most of my travels were in Asia and Latin America, and I've also worked quite a bit in Latin America. I've uh, taught um, construction and use of solar cookers. I've taught English as a second language. Um, and I've worked as a human rights accompaniment person in the combat zone in the jungle in Guatemala. And so I, I'm, you know, really not into that kind of travel anymore. <laughs> um, so I'm now I'm going to the, the more developed places that I bypassed in, in former years. And I'm last spring I was in the Adriatic countries which I had known nothing about so it was very interesting and and informative and um, a year ago I went to um, Italy it was wonderful and I'm hoping to go to Sicily this spring so travel is is one thing I would love to get a dog again Um, my my last dog passed away Oh, I don't know. It's probably been about eight years now. Uh, And I just, I've been very reluctant to make that commitment. I'm not home very much. I usher up at the Wheeler Opera House a lot. And so I'm out of the house a lot. And I didn't think it was really fair to a dog. Uh, And it's different now, you know, you got to have a dog on a leash all the time. And now dogs are getting the same kind of diseases that humans have. And I've just haven't been willing to make that commitment, but I crave canine companionship. Yeah, my wife does as well. I bet you're you're right. It is a huge commitment. I think a lot of people don't take it as seriously right. as they should. So right. dogs spend a lot of time by themselves, and they don't really like yeah. that much. No, no. So those those are things you know that I would like to do for myself, and um, 
um, continue to be, you know, physically active. I, I like to practice yoga and I like to bicycle and um, hike, walk. Um, I'm kind of taking a break from uh, volunteerism, except other than, well, I, I do uh, volunteer at the the Wheeler a lot up Valley. Um, and I have done, you know, a lot of volunteerism for KDNK, but a lot of the things that uh, we used to do, you know, that we used to staff aren't being done by volunteers anymore. Um, but so I'm taking a little break from, you know, some of the other volunteer stuff. And uh, I don't know, you know, it it's... I'm learning how to um, just be rather than mm. do. Yes. Yeah, you know, we're all we're brought up to feel as though we have to be so productive all the time. And I've never really balanced activity with rest. And I, and I do need to, to learn to do that better because um, my body's breaking down. <laughs> yeah, well, being is a... Uh, our culture is is that way you know there's a lot of um, do 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 go 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 right so I did much better at that Um, I had a a meditation practice for many 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 years and I would go on you know 10 day silent retreats all the time and I, I would do an hour and a half of yoga postures and breath work every day and an hour and a half of meditation um for over 20 years but and so that was my form of rest but i don't have the self-discipline anymore (laughs) you can't you can't sit that long that that bebopping 12 year old is in there somewhere so now i you know i go to i go to yoga classes um not I mean, I I know enough to practice on my own, but I just go for the self discipline, um, and uh, meditate. I have another I have a another spiritual practice which I've have followed since I spent a year in Asia in 1972, and I I still practice that. But... Well. There's still there's still a lot to learn out out there and a lot to do for other people. I want you know I've as I mentioned I've had some uh, you know health issues over the past couple of years and people have been so kind and supportive to me and I would like to be able to um, you know have more time to spend one on one with people who are in need. You know I'm I'm usually in groups of people and I'd like to just kind of pull that in and you don't have to go very far to find those people no they're everywhere yeah we are everywhere we are everywhere <laughs> well yeah you and have... you know as we age more of our friends are needing more support right well laurie thanks so much for <laughs> sitting down with me well, it, was, my it was a great a great interview i appreciate your time and I appreciate everything that you've given to this valley and this community. We're all richer for having you here. Thank you. Well, it's uh, it's my passion. 
this community. Yes. That's my passion. And it shows. <laughs> I watched you in drum circle. I don't think you should quit that. That's a that's a place you need to be. I don't want to. <laughs> that 12-year-old was out there this last summer. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you.